Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. Welcome to the chapel this Sunday. I'm Jason. If I don't know you, if you don't know me, come find me afterwards. I'd love to meet you. So... Those of you that have been in church here for the last, oh, I don't know how long we've been going, Brian, fair while now, on, we're continuing our walk through the book of Acts. And this morning, it's my pleasure to talk to you about Acts chapter 12. And I'm calling my talk, and this is important, you'll figure it out later, um, I'm calling my talk The Inscrutable Sovereignty of God because well, what we're going to tangle with this morning is pretty inscrutable, frankly, and, but we do have to reconcile this in all of our lives. So I'm, I think it's fascinating. Let's pray. Mighty God, we honour you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us, that you want to communicate with us, that you are not content to leave us. And Father, we thank you for prayer, that we can talk to you, that we can bring our concerns and our petitions to you, and that you hear our prayers and answer them. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, so I'm being very adventurous this morning. Uh, I'm going to try to cover all of Acts 12, and that means you're going to have to cop my speed reading while we go through the passage this morning. So let's read. We're going to read from Acts 12. I'm reading the NIV version, and it goes like this. It was about that time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. The angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. And when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognised Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had, made a, had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. 
Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He'd been quarrelling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. All right, so there's a fair bit to dig into here. Let's get into it. The story, right, is set. Oh, Cam, I'm trusting you, mate. I've got no, I'm not going to give you any indication at all when to change slides. You've got to listen and just follow along, right? It's on you. All right, so some comments about the text. This story is set, obviously, immediately before the death of Herod Agrippa I, right? We know that from Josephus who records his death in AD 44. So we're talking about 10 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, which Herod are we talking about? Oh my, that's gone quite small, sorry. Right, so here's my little chart about the Herod family tree. There are about three famous Herods in the New Testament. The first, Herod the Great, he's at the top there. He was the guy in charge when Jesus was a baby. He was the one who ordered all the babies in Bethlehem to, to be executed. Execution's a bit of a theme with this guy. Killed a lot of people, including some of his own wives. He had 10 of them and some of his own kids. Uh, not, a, not a nice man. One of his sons, Herod Antipas, was the king who was in charge uh, of Judea when Jesus was on trial. He was the one who Jesus was taken to from Pilate before his execution. Um, and then subsequent, Herod Agrippa I. He's the guy down here. Now this dotted line here, obviously there's a father in here, Aristobulus. He was one of the, he was one of the sons who didn't make it past his own father's orders. And so um, Herod, Antipas, Herod Agrippa I is the king we're talking about in this story. His son, Herod Agrippa II, was probably what you would call the last earthly king of Israel because it was after his rule that Rome turned up and just trashed everything. Okay, so now we, we hear about the house of Mary, the mother of John. We really know this guy as Mark, right? Mark the Mark that went with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary missionary journey and the Mark who ended up writing the Gospel of Mark. That's the, that Mark we're talking about. Finally, the last piece of context is uh, the Festival of Unleavened Bread. Festival of Unleavened Bread, you can read about it in Exodus 12. This is part of the Passover festival, right? Passover is one day. We know what the Passover was. But the Festival of Unleavened Bread led up to Passover. So we're really talking about an eight-day festival kind of used interchangeably between Festival of Unleavened Bread and the Passover. Oh, I'm so glad I can stop saying the Festival of Unleavened Bread. Okay, so that's our context. That's what we're talking about. Now, I, um, I've really enjoyed digging into Acts with you all. I've, I've, I've said it before. I'll say it again. I've been geeking out about this stuff. It is so cool to dig into it. Now, um, let's talk a bit about the start of this passage. To begin with, Herod, Herod Agrippa I had a bit of a problem. He, 
He was a Jew. He was actually a pretty dyed-in-the-wool Jew. Unlike some of the Herods who've kind of been very political, Herod Agrippa I was pretty religious. But the problem he had was that he also loved Rome. He, he, he spent a lot of his early years actually in the courts, the imperial courts in Rome. He was mates with Tiberius, the emperor's sons. And he was in favour with the subsequent emperor, which was Caligula. So he, he kind of loved Rome. He kind of believed in the power of Rome. But at the same time, he was a Jew and he was a pretty fervent Jew. He was trying to bridge the gaps between both of these things, right? And so he was motivated to, to, to show his credentials to the Jews. He didn't want to come across as so, as so sold out to Rome, even though he kind of was. So he was dealing with this significantly rebellious attitude among the Jews, and so he wanted to make some gestures and some concessions to the Jews. I think there was probably some belief among the Jews that this might be the king who would lead a successful revolt against Rome because he seemed to be inside, but he was also, he seemed to be on, on their side when it came to religion. So with the arrest and execution of James, he, he found some approval among the Jews and this was a die he thought he would keep, keep rolling. Now, a few weeks ago, I talked about Saul's conversion. And Saul, as you know, he was persecuting the church at, the, at that time as well. But Saul was doing this out of political conviction, right? You understand that Saul was, he was, he was, he was zealous for, for, for his faith. And so he, was, he really believed that he was doing God's will when he was persecuting the church. Herod, I don't think so. He was, he was doing this for political purposes. He was trying to figure out how he could make both of these factions work together. And so I'm not cutting him any slack at all here, frankly. Um, and so we read here, he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. This is such a terse statement. Um, so matter of fact, you know, Luke, I don't know, you know, maybe he could have dressed this up a bit. I, I, I feel like he could have put a few more words in here. But despite so few words being dedicated to his fate, Luke is casting James's, what happened to James alongside what happened to Peter. We can see that, right? He starts out talking about what happened to James and then he describes what happened to Peter. And they were both in the same situation, but they did not have the same outcome. And that is the point of this whole passage. And this is why I'm calling this talk the inscrutable sovereignty of God. Okay, we'll, we'll talk more about it. Um, it doesn't say it in the text, but <laughs> surely we all believe that the church was praying for James when he was arrested, right? It describes the church praying for Peter, but it doesn't say anything about James. But let's just be honest here. The church would have been praying for James. Uh, you know, look, James, he was a big boy. He knew that discipleship was going to be costly. He had followed Jesus. He was one of Jesus' closest mates. He was the first apostle to be martyred, although not the first follower. We heard about Stephen a few weeks ago, and there would have been others, right, that didn't make the, the front page, okay? There would have been others. So he wasn't the first, but he was the first apostle, and this would have really, I think, um, put a line through any ideas the church had that the apostles were somehow special. That, well, they were special, but you know what I'm saying, that they had special protection, divine protection over them. Um, this was James, the, 
the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder, one of the closest friends of Jesus. James was killed with the sword, which implies he was beheaded in the same way that John the Baptist fell at the hands of Herod Antipas. I don't want to dwell on this, right? But don't be be misled. James probably enjoyed all of those characteristics for which we might today describe as someone who has it all to live for, right? He was probably in his mid-30s, probably married. He probably had some young kids. This was the kind of guy that if he died in a car accident today, we would all be aching. We would all be aching to say, oh, he had so much potential, right? This, this is the guy we're talking about. He was an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection. He had so... He, <laughs> Jesus' resurrection, the central fact in all history, right? And yet he was one of the apostles who was killed early in the spread of the church. He held huge potential. And I wonder if you've ever prayed for an outcome like that church would have been praying for James, where you believed or even implied to God that there is only upside in answering this prayer in the positive. Have you been there? Been there. Why this man? Why now? Why, why, why? Why the question? Ironically, as you might recall, it was James and John who requested of Jesus a place of honour in the kingdom. Yeah. And they assured him that they could drink the cup from which he was to drink. This is Matthew 20, Mark 10 we're talking about, to which Jesus replied, you will drink the cup. Anyway, moving on. Sometimes God answers our prayers in dramatic ways. So Peter is arrested and put under guard so the Jews are not offended by an execution during Passover. Number of guards ordered for Peter's captivity. Sounds excessive. Had a bit of a reputation. He'd already escaped prison once. So maybe Herod knew about that. Uh, maybe he wanted to send a message to the followers of Jesus that he wasn't going to be caught napping. The church was earnestly praying to God for Peter. The base of the Greek word that is translated earnestly um, suggests a stretching, like a straining of a muscle, like stretching this muscle right out. That's, that's the kind of idea I want you to get when it describes the church earnestly praying. Do we pray like that? Stretching out, straining. I, honestly, I have considered my own prayer life with this straining idea in mind. How many times, how, how many ways are there to ask for Peter to be released? How many times do I have to pray for Peter's release before it's earnest prayer? I, 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 I am not sure I have this reconciled in my mind, but I think it's on all of us to try and understand earnest prayer. Um, Now, moving on, God is always intentional. No details are too small for his attention. The middle verses here describing Peter's actual escape from the prison. I just love their simplicity and the the suggestion of power here. There's this idea that there's a voice, the voice that everything just obeys. Everything just obeys. Everything hears the voice and obeys. Peter, he hears, he obeys. The chains, they hear, they obey. The iron gate. Just opens up by itself, closes, it hears and obeys. Um, I love this section because it is a metaphor for our own salvation. Um, 
We awake from our slumber in a great light. We follow the promptings of the Spirit who encourages us to prepare. Difficulties are passed through. The opposition of Satan and the world, the first and second barrier. And we're saved by the grace of God if we put ourselves under his kingship. And at length, the dark iron gate, death itself, opens for us. And we step into the new Jerusalem. I I like that Peter is a bit of a passenger here. He's just kind of like plodding along, doesn't say anything, doesn't kind of like, oh, but what about? No, none none of that. Um, He follows along as if he's in a dream, but he does follow. He follows the clear voice of the Lord. And and I love that Peter appears to have kind of grown up a bit here, doesn't he? He doesn't say something stupid like, oh, let's set up a few tents, Lord, for you and Elijah and Moses. No, doesn't say anything dumb. And he doesn't try to cut off anyone's ear or anything. You know, he's just, I'm cool with it. I love it. I love it. Afterwards, he goes to Mary's house and then later he decides to leave. Uh, He left for another place. It's implied that he goes into hiding, right? Why? Last time the apostles were imprisoned and were miraculously released, they immediately turned up in the temple courts again for more preaching and more persecution. But this time Peter disappears like the angel. I'm reminded of Jesus' instruction in Matthew 10 to be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent of doves as, as doves. We trust God's sovereignty, but we also lock our houses. We wear seatbelts, buy insurance, study for exams, some of us. <laughs> Miracles are the exception even in this story. There's still a lot of decisions in the natural going on here, even if they're prompted and confirmed by the Holy Spirit. I I can't go past this without making a comment about Luke and his little bit of a joke about the door. I'm looking forward to meeting Rhoda in the life to come and just saying, how's it feel, you know, having your name in the Bible because you didn't answer the door when Peter turned up. I'm looking forward to having a laugh with her about that. What I do want to point out further in this particular part of the story is that the church who were earnestly praying, they did not expect this answer, (laughs) did they? They so didn't expect this answer that they didn't even believe that Peter was at the door twice. They knew that prayer wasn't a formula. They didn't know what God was going to do. Now, that a miracle happened here is not at all obvious to Herod. Okay, God did not do this in a way that it, it was clear to everybody that he'd had a hand in this. He obviously, Herod obviously believed the guards were culpable. Otherwise, why would, why would he have cross-examined them and held them for execution? You don't, you don't blame a guard when God does a thing. But he didn't know that, and God didn't see fit to broadcast it. Right? So God's working here to encourage the church, but not necessarily to make a statement publicly um, which, and, and further to that, the execution of the guards, um, this, should, this should say something to you about how serious it was to have people placed in your custody in, in the early Palestine, right? Same with Jesus, you know, the guards, they faced severe consequences for losing prisoners. Uh, again, you know, the, the guy, uh, is it Saul's jailer who was going to fall on his sword when the prison was broken open and Paul's going, don't kill yourself. It's okay, we're all still here. That's how serious it was to have someone in your custody. So after all that, what can we say about Peter's rescue alongside James' execution? 
God is sovereign. But somehow, it isn't as if prayers don't matter. Prayer matters. Prayer makes a difference. God uses prayer to accomplish his purposes. Now, um, how am I going for time, Brian? My clock has just stopped there at 10. I guess this means I can keep going. <laughs> Look, I, I was going to dig in a little bit more to the end here of the passage. Let me just read you something that Josephus, the Jewish historian, wrote in the Antiquities of the Jews. He, he says about Herod, he put on a garment made holy of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful. He came into the theatre early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by the f- fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it shone out after a surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those who looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, though not for his good, that he was a god. A severe pain also arose in his belly and he began in a most violent manner. When he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life. So this is Josephus' writing, describing the same event we get at the end of Acts 12. I guess the point here, and this is kind of the dot on the end of the story, is that there is ultimate justice. Those that kill the Lord's people will be judged if they do not repent. God's justice is not a faint hope like human justice in this life where so many evade punishment one way or the other or don't get punished or or, or are punished unfairly. God will defend his people and punish his enemies. So wrapping up, what shall we say about Acts 12? Will we always be rescued? No. Like James, in this world there is trouble and prayer is not a formula. Well, in that case, will we never be rescued? No. Like Peter, sometimes prayers are answered, even beyond our expectations. The miraculous happens. God delivers his people supernaturally. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. On what then can we rely? One thing thing only is reliable. Put your trust on the divine love, the utter faithfulness, the mighty power and the unshakable character of Christ. All right, so we're going to have a break now for a few minutes. I, um, I wonder if you might talk with your uh, companions about earnest prayer this morning, praying earnestly, what that means, whether you prayed earnestly and, and what the outcome was. God bless you. If you would like to bring your attention back. That'd be great. What a great, I love the hum of conversation in the 8.30 in the reflection time. I don't like it so much in the preaching time, but um, I love it in the reflection time. Um, I hope you had a great discussion. We had a, a beautiful discussion in ours and, and Jace, thank you for that word. 100% 11% in that one. That was amazing if you were here last week. I, I just want to mention um, Overflow, uh, last one tonight. Um, 6.05 is when we start our extended worship time. Hearing the voice of God and an instruction and learning about hearing the voice of God is at a quarter to. And so if you hear last overflow, you know that 
you thought we were going to start at six and we and we started overflow at 6.25 um, and, uh, and Kath all week's been texting me, stay alive, 6.05. So 100% we will be doing 6.05, we'll be doing extended worship time. But if you want to come for instruction on how to hear the voice of God, come at 5.45 and uh, we would love to do that together. Um, okay, that is tonight, uh, last one for the year. If you get to the 8.30 worship and when it finishes, you're like, oh, I was just getting into it. That's what overflow is for. Um, okay, so uh, Jace really um, just preached the same message that I was going to preach. So um, I've decided instead to go with the last part and I'm going to preach on worms, tapeworm, ringworms, um, garden worms. Uh, and I'd like us all to testify, if you would, on worms this morning. No, I, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll hopefully bring um, something else to what Jace brought. Um, I remember the Olympics, the year 2000. Was anyone alive for the year 2000 Olympics? It was an amazing year. Kathy Freeman lit the cauldron. Kathy Freeman went on to gold medal. It was an incredible time. Um, it went from the 15th of the 9th to the 1st of the 10th. Uh, and I know that because six days later, Darren Francis Spinell and I got married and um, so I was deep in wedding planning and doing last minute things and Darren was watching the Olympics. So that was great. Um, you, you know, you remember the snowy mountain, what is it called? No, the men from Snowy River theme and all the thunderous hooves going in. It was absolutely incredible. But I remember it for one other, other reason and I'd like you to watch the screen today. We've got a video. Lane five representing Equatorial Guinea, Eric. With a name like Eric, if he'd been an athlete, he could have been an elephant. As it was, two false starts in the men's heats in the 100 metres freestyle in Sydney left in the most famous eel in the pool. And heat one of this men's 100 metres freestyle. And here we have Eric Musambani of Equatorial Guinea. And Adrian, I've never seen anything like this at the Olympic Games before. This guy... Doesn't look as he's going to make it. Moment. Now I am convinced this guy is going to have to get hold of the lane rope in a minute, which is awesome. Adrian, I'm not sure he's going to make it, is he? No, he is. This is, this is the Olympics. He's got 17,000 people shouting for him. He's also Eric Musambani of Equatorial Guinea wins heat one of the men's 100 meters freestyle. Well. I thought I'd seen everything in the Olympic swimming pool. We've had nine world records. We've had 19 Olympic records. And I've just seen somebody go one minute 52.72 for 100 freestyle. And get a bigger cheer. How did it feel to be in that race? I'm feeling good. I am feeling, I'm, I'm happy. You've got to love Australia in that he got a massive cheer. Um, we were watching it, my sister and I, and then we later watched, I don't know if you know, but um, Australia always wins the Olympics every year um, until the, the swimming stops and then we don't win anymore. Um, we especially won in the year 2000 because we cleaned up in the pool. Uh, and then this guy came, but there was a shot then to a guy on a podium um, and then they interviewed him after. It was a silver medalist, an Australian silver medalist who was uh, supposed to win gold. And my he was devastated. He's like, I'm just so, I've prepared for gold and, you know, I've got silver and absolutely busted. And by that time, my sister was a kindergarten teacher and she went, 
That is so ungrateful. I'm get, if I was there, I would say, I'm taking your silver medal and I'm giving it to that little African fellow because he's way more grateful than what you are. And there's anyone else getting mum vibes with that? Like, I'm going to take your food and give it to your little brother because he will be grateful for it. Um, and I was always grateful for food, so that never happened to me. Um, but there's a parable of the soul that Jesus tells, uh, sorry, of the talents, whereby uh, he gives each person some money, this master does, in order to steward that and to make that grow. But what happens is that one guy, out of his insecurity and fear of who the master is, he buries that and he doesn't bring that to fruition. And so what he had was taken from him and given to someone who was able to steward it, steward it better. Now, what has any of that got to to do with the book of Acts and the passage that we just read. The question is, are you ready for a miracle? Are you ready for a miracle? Are you ready for a miracle? Nathan Tain started dancing. I know that he knows it. Peter was in the midst of a miracle and thought he was in a vision. Um, the, the Acts 9 verse that Jace read out, he thought he was in a vision. And, and it wasn't until he was out in the cold, dark street by himself that he went, oh, I'm actually, this is real. This is actually happening. And then later, obviously in the house, they're praying for his release and they find that actually the miracle has happened, but they don't even notice it. Are you ready for a miracle? I want to give you three things this morning to be ready for a miracle. And the first one is, what is your view of the miracle maker? What is your view of the miracle worker? Uh, it's attributed to a guy called Epicurus back in the day that um, a, a, a philosopher, David Hume, a Scottish philosopher wrote about evil and he said it's a problem. Evil is a problem and God makes this problem bigger. The concept of God makes this problem even more complicated. If God is willing to eradicate evil or if he's a willing being, then he is impotent. He is not able because we still see evil everywhere. He says if he's able, then he's actually malevolent. Oh, practice this word, malevolent. Yes, great. What's that chick's name? Maleficent. Thank you. Yes. I love that you knew what, exactly what I was talking about. Thanks, Chrissy. Um, um, Maleficent, you know, it was, that's, makes him evil. If he's, if he's able to do something about the problem of evil and there's still evil in the world and, and he can do something about it, then he's not a good God, he's bad. And so this philosopher is saying the existence of evil makes the concept of God impossible. So what do we do with something like that? Um, you know, Dan Urquhart talked last week. I just encourage you, please listen to the podcast if you didn't hear it. It was a phenomenal message in the 10 a.m. about the kingdom of God. And he said something about the parable of the sower, whereby that the same seed goes into the ground each time. The only difference is the soil and that soil is our hearts. And so our view of the miracle worker is so important because that's the soil that the seed of faith needs to go into. So it's actually our view of the miracle worker that determines what that seed of faith does, whether it's rocky ground and there's no way for it to grow, whether there's too much focus on the things of this world and, and it can't grow because it gets choked out. Actually, the seed goes into um, fertile ground if we, our view of the miracle worker is correct and it bears fruit. Now, for me, at the moment, I'm going through a situation where I'm going, God, I know that you're able. So are you willing? Are you willing to do something? Then I'm coming back to, of course, I know you're willing, God. Of course, I know you're willing. And so I have to elevate the truth of what I know about God beyond my current circumstance. I have to elevate the truth beyond the facts that I see right now. I have to be, remind myself that actually I exist in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God surpasses my current reality. 
I know that this sounds like, well, you, you're just, this is just optimism. You're just checking your brain at the door. No, I'm actually just got a high view of the truth about who God is. And that's what I put my trust in. It's like the man the, in Mark 1.40 who came to Jesus and it says, a man with leprosy came to Jesus and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So the, the leper acknowledged that in fact, Jesus was able and he's saying, Jesus, for me, this is just a question of your willingness. And Jesus says, Am I willing? Of course I'm willing. Be clean. And so we need to constantly reassess our view of the miracle worker. And if it's sneaking into our thinking that, God, you're not willing, we need to align our thinking to the truth rather than try to adjust the truth to our circumstances. He is willing and He is able. He is willing and He is able. And you might say, Bron, well, why hasn't it happened yet? Let's keep looking The second thing that I want to point out, and this goes to Eric the Eel and Gillian the kindergarten teacher, what is your view of miracles? Uh, This thing happens in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus sends out a bunch of people and gives them authority and says, go for it, guys. I want to see you do things like I've been doing. You've got the authority to do it. Here, go do it. And they do it and they heal people and they stay in towns and they preach the good news of the kingdom of God and they see um, people, unclean spirits, leave people in those places. And it's incredible. And, and they come back and they're like, Jesus, that was amazing. We loved it. It was so much fun. And Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Hey, that's really cool. But what's even cooler than that is that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life, that your names are written in the book of life and you get to go to heaven. That is what's even cooler than that. You get eternal life. And so I just want to say, what's your view of the miracle? Because part of the miracle is your salvation. And I feel like, I feel like we could be Australian silver medalists with this and go, oh yeah, yeah, I've got um, a miracle uh, of my salvation, but I want to see the big miracles. And I don't don't think Jesus would do this because he's not a kindergarten teacher, but I feel like he'd go, you know what, I'm going to take, not your salvation, but I'm going to take that miracle that I was going to do and go and give it to this grateful person over here who's actually really grateful for their salvation. I think we need to foster gratitude for all the things that we see around us, starting with our salvation. Let's not forget that that's the biggest miracle that could ever occur. The biggest miracle that could ever occur is you being transplanted from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. The biggest miracle that could ever occur is you being filled with the Holy Spirit and the things that once controlled you, control you no longer. These are the biggest miracles. And if we get gratitude and foster gratitude for that miracle, I think we become fertile soil for greater miracles. Greater miracles. Start there. Start with gratitude in our salvation. And then finally, what is your expectation for miracles? And the band can come. We're going to finish in just a moment. What is your expectation for miracles? In James chapter 5, verse 13, it says this, is there anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint with them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other. Wish we had reflection time after this because we could be doing this right now. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. Just everything here. Is anyone in trouble? Pray. Anyone happy? Pray with praise. Anyone sick? How about you pray? 
So our expectation should be that immediately that God will do something. God is up to something. Am I sick? I'm going to pray. Am I happy? I'm going to pray. Am I in trouble? I'm going to pray. Oh, I woke up this morning. I'm still in trouble. I'm going to pray again. Oh, three days in, I'm still in trouble. I'm going to pray again. Then my first response would be prayer. And I want to challenge you in a way that I was challenged this week, that your first response would actually be praise. This week I was challenged about a situation that we're going through, that I would actually begin to thank God for it. I was like, excuse me, that's just rude. (laughs) But this person said, try just thanking God for it. And so the morning I woke up and it was the first thing on my mind as it has been. And I woke up and I began to think, why is this happening? Why is this dragging out? Why is it still going on? And I flicked it into praise and said, God, thank you for what you're doing through this. Lord, thank you that you say that when we endure, we become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Thank you, Lord. And, and it was completely, it was like, I'm like, this is nuts. And it felt completely wrong. And then it tipped into feeling completely right. That actually praise God for it. That in fact, it would do a dual thing. That it would silence the enemy because the enemy's ploy from the beginning has always been to get us to question God, to question His goodness in our lives. And so number one problem solved. I'm questioning God, are you truly good? That's really the, the crux of my question when I'm beginning to wonder why, 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 which is not a problem. God allows us all those questions. But I silence the voice of the enemy who would say, is God really willing? Is God really able? I silence that. And then secondly, I praise God, which really annoys Him. I nearly said something else there, but it really annoys Him. And I'm like, yes, sweet, two birds, one stone, praising God. So now, whenever I go to worry about that, whenever I go to think or wonder, not even worry, just wonder, I start to change my brain to start thanking God for that thing. Am I there yet? No. (laughs) But am I rewiring? Absolutely. Now, what I want to say about that is I want to go back into James chapter 4. In verse 2b, it says, You do not have because you do not ask God. So, so many times we don't even have because we haven't even asked. That hasn't been our first response. We're waiting for it to be our last resort. So you do not have because you do not ask God. Verse 3, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now, that's talking about something specific. I want to apply it more broadly this morning into that we want the quick fix every time, right? Is anyone praying for endurance to drag on and on and on? Is anyone praying for their health report just to go see another five specialists? Anyone praying for that? No, we want instant. We want the quick fix. We want the healing right now. And that's me praying from my understanding because I've got the motive of the quick fix. Whereas God's got a much bigger picture in mind where He's saying, I want to take you where you are and I want to pull you into maturity and completeness where you'll be perfect and lacking in nothing. So are you ready for a miracle? What is your view of the miracle? Are you still questioning if He's willing or if He's able? Or can you settle that in your heart and say, Lord, I know that you're willing and I know that you're able. Is your heart that receptive soil? Are you? Um, what is your view of the miracle? Are you thanking God for every single miracle in your life? Though it seems 
seem small and insignificant? Are you thanking God for the shelter of your home? Are you thanking God for the car that you get to drive in? Are you thanking God for all the miracles? Are you thanking God when you get to conquer that thought pattern that you thought you would never conquer? That's a miracle right there. Are you thanking God? And then finally, what is your expectation for miracles? Can you, first response, pray. First response, ask God. First response, ask God. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to thechapelcollective.com.au And thanks again for listening.